If you would take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. And as you turn there, I would ask you to imagine with me this morning in your mind busy first century streets bustling with visitors from across Israel coming into Jerusalem for a time of feasting, celebration, and sacrifice. It's time again for Passover. Families have been making preparations for weeks and many have been walking for several days to make the required journey to Jerusalem in order to bring their sacrifice to the temple. You and your family are trying to make your way through a crowded street, but your progress is slow because of all the other travelers who are coming to Jerusalem that day. For the most part, you keep to yourself just trying to make sure your own family stays together and makes it safely to their destination, but you can't help but notice the whispers and conversations of others around you as you make your way through those crowded streets. And there seems to be one resounding theme that every conversation you hear comes back to, and it centers on one particular name, Jesus. You've heard this name. You yourself have wondered if maybe you might catch a glimpse of this famous rabbi who's been traveling the country doing marvelous things. There's been much talk about this man Jesus in your hometown and much disagreement about just who he might be. Most seem to think favorably of him except for the local synagogue leaders. And he seems to have helped many people with his miracles and his teaching is unlike anything that's ever been heard in Israel before. Some have even begun to wonder if maybe, just maybe, this rabbi could be the Messiah. It's even reported that just days ago, he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And as you contemplate these things, suddenly you notice the crowd around you is stirred up. And people begin to rush in your direction and you grab a hold of your children trying to see what's the cause of the commotion. And you see in the distance that the commotion centers on one man. You see this man. It's not a man you've ever seen before, but yet you seem to know instinctively this must be Jesus. People around you begin to shout declarations of praise. Hosanna! Hosanna! Others begin to run and bring palm branches and lay them on the ground in front of him as he enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And the crowd's excitement reaches fever pitch as he and his disciples begin to make their way through that crowded street. This is the scene that should come to our minds when we think about Palm Sunday, the Sunday we come to this morning. Jesus enters Jerusalem seemingly at the height of his popularity and ministry success. There have, of course, been detractors along the way, particularly among the Pharisees and the leaders of the Sanhedrin, but the crowds seem to love him. No doubt his disciples are convinced that with this kind of entrance into Jerusalem, maybe this is the time that Jesus is going to reveal himself as the Messiah and King of the Jews and begin to reign as their king, overthrowing Roman oppression. But the words of Jesus that week reveal that he understands that the pathway to ushering in the kingdom of God will not come through a coronation 
but through a crucifixion. In fact, he will say these perplexing words not long after that glorious reception on Palm Sunday. In John chapter 12, beginning in verse 31, Jesus will say, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus understood as he marched into Jerusalem that he was headed towards the cross. Towards the cross that had been predestined for him before the world began. Over the last two weeks we've been looking at the glories of Christ as they are revealed in his suffering in the book of Hebrews. And this morning as we come to Palm Sunday and in anticipation for Resurrection Sunday next week, it's appropriate for us to take a deeper, closer look at Jesus Christ as he is, in his words, lifted up. We've talked about his glory and how it was manifest in his suffering. Now let's go and see it. With that in mind this morning, we'll be in Luke's account of the crucifixion in Luke 23. And of course, this is an account that's far too detailed for us to cover in one message. And so I'm going to give an overview of of large sections of this and focus our attention primarily on one scene between Jesus and the thief on the cross. But the theme of the Gospel of Luke as a whole is Jesus as the Son of Man. And what we're going to see specifically in our verses this morning is Jesus' crucifixion proves his identity and demonstrates his power to save. Let's look together at Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. It says, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, and the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In these verses, I want us ultimately to focus our attention on that final scene. But we have to understand the context before we get there. And so what we're going to find in this narrative this morning are four observations about the crucifixion of Christ. 
four observations. And these observations, I hope, will help us to yet again see in a deeper way how the glory of Christ is revealed in and through his suffering. By this point in the narrative, we're jumping into the middle of what's been a very long 24 hours for our Lord. After a wonderful meal with his disciples, he was, of course, betrayed by one of his own, Judas Iscariot, and then arrested by Roman soldiers at the request of the Jewish leaders. He's already gone through a bogus trial in front of the Jews, which led to a trial in front of Pontius Pilate and then Herod and then back to Pontius Pilate, which led, of course, to the Jews doing the unthinkable and choosing the freedom of a criminal named Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate was convinced that Jesus was innocent, but he caved to the pressure of the Jewish leaders and turned Jesus over to be crucified. That led immediately then to Jesus being beaten with whips, which would have been interwoven with fragments of metal or bone, intended to rip and tear his flesh with each excruciating blow. He was then dressed in a purple robe of mockery, a royal robe to mock him, and then given a terrible crown of thorns pushed down on his head as he was beat over the head with a reed that was to be a mocking sort of staff for him as the king of the Jews. This purple robe then was ripped from his body, which reopened the wounds on his back and legs. And then he was made to carry the cross beam of his cross to the execution site. But the exhaustion from the last 24 hours, having had nothing to eat or drink for several hours, sweating blood in the garden, and then being beaten was just too much, and he couldn't carry the weight of the cross beam any further. And so a man named Simon is forced into service by the soldiers to carry his cross. That brings us then to our text and the first observation. Observation number one, an unthinkable humiliation. An unthinkable humiliation. Look back at verse 32 of chapter 23. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. It's interesting to me that in the middle of this most important scene from the life of Christ, Luke chooses to interject these two nameless criminals who would also be crucified on either side of Jesus. And we have to remind ourselves that crucifixion was a, a form of execution that was reserved only for the worst of criminals. It was, in fact, against the law to crucify a Roman citizen, which is likely why Paul is said to have been beheaded rather than crucified. This means that these men on either side of, of Jesus were truly wicked and sinful men by any moral code. So Jesus is going to be lifted up. Think of this. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God is going to be lifted up in between Two examples of the worst that humanity has to offer from a moral standpoint. But as shocking as this is, it should not be surprising either to us or to the Jews. Because what we're going to see in our text over and over again is that the cross of Christ is an undeniable proof of his identity as the Son of God and Messiah. That's because everything that happens to him is in accordance with God's revealed plan in Scripture. 
The prophet Isaiah clearly states that the, the Messiah will suffer and be numbered among the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So though Christ's suffering is certainly shocking, it should not be surprising to anyone who understands the scriptures. The text goes on to say that when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. Now, we don't know exactly where this place called the skull is today. If you travel to Israel, there are two primary places that they guess that it may be, but we don't ultimately know the place. But we do know that it must have been a common place for crucifixions to be held. This brings up an important point, by the way, that we have to understand about crucifixion, and that is that this form of execution was intended to send a message. It was intended for the public to see the spectacle of the cross, to see the person hanging there, and to be warned, don't do what they did or we will do this to you. That was the idea. It was an intimidation tactic by the Romans, and they were masters at using this as an intimidation tactic. But then we come to the four of the most sobering words in the scripture. Every time I come to this text and I read through the scripture, I'm always struck by the brevity and yet the enormity of these words. There they crucified him. There they crucified him. It's interesting that none of the four Gospels give a detailed description of Christ's crucifixion crucifixion process. That's in part because the people of the day needed no details. All of them undoubtedly at some point would have passed by multiple people, likely, hanging on crosses. Again, it was a common public spectacle. It was a regular part of Roman rule. But in addition to that, I think the fact that this is not expounded on also highlights the fact that the physical suffering of Jesus, though immense and horrific, is not the primary focus. What makes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ a substitution for his people is not simply that he suffered physically, but that in his suffering, he also bore the outpouring of the wrath of God. And it's there that the text focuses its attention. But it's still important that we paint the picture of what crucifixion would have been like because thankfully here in America we don't walk by crosses with people hanging on them. Crucifixion is a form of execution that originated with the Persian Empire that was then picked up by Alexander the Great and then carried on over into the Roman Empire. But it's the Romans who were credited with sort of being the masterminds behind turning crucifixion into this form of execution that would bring the maximum amount of physical and psychological suffering. There were multiple ways in which people were crucified, but most often the arms would have been tied down to the crossbeam and then nails would have been driven into uh, the wrist between the two bones here in the arm in order to support the weight of the person on the cross. This would have been done on the ground and then that crossbeam would have been lifted up and attached to the stake that would have already been in place there at the crucifixion site. 
can imagine the pain and the suffering that would have caused. But then, as the person's legs are hanging there, they would often contort the body so that they could nail a single nail through both of the feet or ankles of that person to secure his feet to the cross. Sometimes they would add a a small little platform or stake where the person could sit on the cross. But don't mistake that as sympathy from the Romans. That was actually to extend the amount of time it would take for a person to die so they would suffer longer. Because ultimately, many victims died from asphyxiation because they no longer were able to lift themselves up and to take a breath. But that seat would allow them to breathe longer and therefore live longer and therefore suffer longer. If you've ever had any kind of nerve pain, then you know that shooting, burning pain of nerve pain, picture that to an unimaginable degree, radiating from both of your wrists and both of your ankles, covering your entire body. And imagine having to struggle for every breath, pushing against those nerves on a nail to to lift up just enough to breathe, and while doing so, feeling your back, which has open wounds from the beating you've taken, rubbing up against that raw wooden cross. And picture doing this over and over and over. Some victims lasted for days on the cross. This is just a brief description of what our precious, perfect Lord suffered for us on that horrific day. And next to him, hanging there, were two criminals suffering the same fate, only in their case as a just punishment for their crimes. The horrors of what Jesus went through on the cross are truly staggering. But as sickening as his suffering is, it's his reaction to the unjust suffering that should catch our attention. This brings us to a second observation. Observation number two, an astonishing petition. An astonishing petition. Now, before we read this next section of text, I want you to to think with me for a moment of three things. I want you to draw some memories to mind. First of all, I want you to recall the worst pain you've ever felt in your life. Bring that to mind. Secondly, I want you to recall the time in your life that you have been most unjustly treated. That is, someone has truly treated you in a way that was wrong that you did not deserve. And thirdly, I want you to picture the time in your life that you've been the most humiliated, the most publicly humiliated in front of others. Now I want you to picture all three of those events colliding into one singular moment. Maximum pain, maximum unjust treatment, maximum humiliation. And this is what took place in the life of our Lord there on that cross, only to an agree, a degree that we could never begin to fathom. Now answer the question, if that could happen, if all of those things, all of those terrible moments in your life took place at one time and you're looking at the people responsible, directly responsible for that, how would you respond to them. Listen to how Jesus responds. But Jesus was saying, Father, 
Forgive them. Forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. This is our Lord and Savior. Here, the glory of Jesus Christ comes shining out of the darkness of this day with a display of brilliance that is beyond our comprehension. Picture Jesus hanging there on that cross just a week ago, hailed as a king as he enters into Jerusalem, now publicly humiliated, treated as the worst of criminals, and submitted to merciless, calculated, physical suffering. And yet he musters his strength strength through the pain to pray. And, And he doesn't pray for deliverance. He doesn't pray that God would bring justice against his enemies. Instead, he calls upon the Father to forgive them. Forgive them. Now we're beginning to see yet another layer of what the author of Hebrews means when he says that it is fitting. It was fitting for the Father to put the Son through this suffering to bring many sons to glory. Understand that Jesus is not praying in his heart or in his mind. He's verbalizing this prayer in front of all these people. And notice also that he still refers to God as Father. His confidence in the Father has not been shaken by this injustice against him. And he adds this explanation for his prayer, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, that might strike us as odd because on a human plane, obviously, they knew what they were doing. They just nailed Jesus to the cross, and they're reveling in the fact that they just nailed him to the cross. But Jesus means they have no idea that what they're really doing is murdering the precious Son of God, their own Messiah. The one who led their people out of Egypt into the promised land the prophet that Moses promised would come after him, the one from the line of David. They've just nailed him to the cross. They're hardened in their rejection of him and blinded to the reality of who he really is. And so Jesus looks at them and musters his strength through the pain to pray, Father, forgive them. And in so doing, he fulfills the scriptures yet again. Because at the end of Isaiah 53, verse 12, there at the end of that verse, it says, Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Here we see him making intercession with his own life and his own blood, but also making intercession for them by praying for them on the cross. But not only does he fulfill the scripture of the Old Testament, he models the truths that he taught his disciples. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, how does Jesus say we should respond to those who treat us as enemies? He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's one thing for Jesus to teach this to his disciples in a sermon, but now he has shown it to them in his life, and he shows it to them again even in his death. 
And this was meant to be a pattern that the people of Christ would follow. In fact, not long after the ascension of Christ, very early on in the life of the early church, a man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7 becomes the first martyr of Christ. And as he's being stoned there, what does he pray with his final breath? Forgive them. He follows the pattern of his Lord. All too often we justify responding to others with anger and retribution because we've legitimately been mistreated by them. But brothers and sisters, we have to remember that no one has ever been more unjustly treated than our Lord on that day as he hung on the cross. And even on that day, his response was to pray for their forgiveness. May we imitate his perfect example and in so doing magnify Christ and his glorious gospel. But having seen the response of Jesus to his enemies, we're now given the response of his enemies toward him. In observation number three, a prophetic rejection. A prophetic rejection. Very quickly, I want you to see four different responses that Luke records to Jesus of the people in attendance that day. And all four of these responses are prophetic. That is, they fulfill Old Testament prophecy. The first example here of a reaction towards Jesus is gambling executioners. Gambling executioners. Look back at the text. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. This was a common practice that went along with Roman crucifixion. The soldiers in charge of the execution were legally allowed to to sort of gamble for the last belongings of the victim. So from that standpoint, this is not all that remarkable, except for when you take into account the fact that the scriptures prophesy that this would happen to the Messiah before crucifixion as a form of execution was ever even invented. This is why we read Psalm 22 this morning. Psalm 22 verse 18 says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Casting lots is somewhat similar to rolling dice. This is a vivid reminder that the cross of Christ was brought about by the predetermined plan of God, as we saw last week. These evil men sinned against Jesus and murdered him that day on the cross, but it was Jesus who was in perfect control. Jesus was only on that cross because he chose to be there as the Savior of his people, and you and I can have confidence that that is true because every aspect of his death perfectly fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Notice a second example of a prophetic response to Jesus on the cross. Example number two, I've called gawking crowds. Gawking crowds. It says they divided up his garments among themselves. Then verse 35, and the people stood by looking on. As I said earlier, crucifixions were intentionally put in public places so that travelers would have to pass by. They were often put along uh, popular roadways. And just days ago, Jesus was received into Jerusalem by these crowds proclaiming his praises. Now the crowds gather yet again, but this time simply to stare at the rabbi on the cross. But this humiliation too is spelled out for us in Psalm 22 verse 17. 
I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. In the eyes of all standing at the foot of the cross, Jesus seemed to be a helpless victim, but now we discover that he was, in fact, the divine director. All things were coming to pass according to his sovereign plan. And on the cross, he was meticulously fulfilling every prophecy made of him, down to the smallest detail. But while the crowds were just simply staring at him, the Jewish rulers were mocking him. And this brings us to a third example of a response to Jesus sneering rulers. Look back at verse 35. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. In the eyes of the Jewish leaders, the cross was the ultimate trump card in their attempts to to prove that Jesus was just a fraud. Because crucifixion, understand this, crucifixion was so universally despised by the Romans, by the Jews, that, that they were convinced that if, we, if God would allow his, this person to be put on the cross, it proves publicly to everybody that he cannot possibly be the Messiah. After all, the Jews were also convinced that crucifixion fell under the Old Testament curse of a person being hung on a tree. Uh, Paul mentions this in Galatians 3.13, but in a positive way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But understand from the perspective of the Jews, God the Father would never allow the Messiah to be murdered at all, let alone to be murdered on a cross, to become a curse. And so this confidence led them to celebrate their victory of exposing him as a supposed fraud by publicly mocking him. But here's what's so disturbing about their words. Because in ridiculing Christ, they admit that he has performed great miraculous works. They begin their mocking by saying, he saved others. He saved others. They don't say that mockingly as if they don't believe he saved others. They know he saved others. As many of them witnessed him saving others. And that knowledge of the wonderful miracles of Christ should have pointed them to the truth of who he is. But now they they, they evidence their hardness of heart and their blindness and just reveal that they still do not understand the scriptures. It's, It's an illustration of what Jesus said over and over again. Have you not read? They still don't understand the Bible. Because in their mocking, they actually are affirming the Old Testament scriptures. We turn again to Psalm 22. Listen to this. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. These Jewish leaders were parroting the words of the 22nd Psalm and thus fulfilling the scriptures unbeknownst to them. Their mocking was actually proof that this indeed is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. 
that there's a fourth prophetic response to Jesus on the cross. Example number four, mocking soldiers. Mocking soldiers. It says, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Understand that ridiculing the victim on the cross was a common aspect of crucifixion. Uh, the, again, this form of execution was intended to, to torture a person physically, but also psychologically. It was meant to mess with that person. And the Roman soldiers obviously are far less informed about who Jesus really is than the Jewish rulers were. They're not saying their words out of having witnessed the miracles of Christ. They're simply mocking him because of what's written above his head. Look at the next verse. It says, Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. They're looking at the inscription, King of the Jews, and the person, and saying, Oh, that's laughable. Some king you must be. In fact, they go on to mock him by taking sour wine, it says, and offering it to him. They're acting sort of like bullies in a high school locker room. They're, they're taunting him. They're, they're making fun of him. And the thing about this sour wine is it was a way of shaming him because this kind of wine was the cheapest possible wine available and only the poorest of the poor drank this kind of wine. No king would ever drink that. And so they're offering to him this sour wine. Here you go, king. Here's your wine, but in so doing, they too fulfill Psalm 69, verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Most scholars believe this reference to vinegar is a reference to this sour wine offered to Jesus here on the cross. And so as we take all of this together, we've seen the character of Christ and his righteous prayer of forgiveness. We've seen the providence and power of Christ in, in bringing every prophecy of his suffering to pass. But all of this has been driving this morning towards one final observation where I want us to, to spend our time and I hope capture our attention for the remainder of our morning. Because it's here in this interaction that we see the glorious, redeeming love of the Savior and the true reason that he has subjected himself to such unthinkable torture. And it brings us to a fourth observation. Number four, a gracious redemption. A gracious redemption. Earlier, earlier we saw our Savior praying on the cross for the forgiveness of his enemies. And that prayer was not just directed at the Roman soldiers immediately there at the foot of the cross, but it was directed towards everyone there that day that was involved in this crucifixion in some way. And it does beg the question, did the Father answer this prayer? Did the Father answer the prayer of Jesus when he prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies? Well, the rest of the text answers that question with a resounding Yes. It's at this point that Luke turns our attention back to the two individuals who were crucified on either side of Jesus. And the text goes on to say, verse 39, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
Now, astonishingly, this criminal, who's also suffering the same physical agony of crucifixion, joins in with the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers to heap blasphemy upon Jesus. And the irony here is palatable. Here's the high king of heaven being ridiculed by this condemned criminal. In fact, the the other gospels record that it was not just one of the thieves, but both thieves initially were hurling abuse at Jesus. Matthew 27, 44 says, The robbers, plural, who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And this is a a ridiculous display of pride and arrogance. It reeks of Proverbs 19.3. One of my favorite Proverbs says, The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. That is, the foolishness of a man's own choices ruin his life, but who does he blame? God. Here's this man. He's suffering the consequences of his own sin, and yet he's hurling abuse at Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. Isn't this what we see in unbelievers all around us? No unbeliever is truly neutral towards Jesus. They are his enemies, and though their sins justly condemn them, they set themselves up in opposition to Christ, even blaming him for their predicament. But though both criminals initially joined in the mocking of Jesus, one of them has a dramatic change of heart. Two things have been happening since these men were placed on their crosses. Number one, they've been watching and listening to Jesus as he prays for the forgiveness of these people. And secondly, God the Father has been watching and listening to Jesus as he prays for the forgiveness of his enemies. And suddenly, one of the criminals has his eyes opened to the reality of exactly who it is that's hanging next to him. And in that moment, his heart goes from ridicule to righteous indignation. And he sounds off back at the other criminal on the other side of Jesus with these scathing words. It says, but the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, he says, look, You've proven that you don't fear man. That's why you're on this cross. You, you broke the law. You, you didn't care about the authority of human beings. But do you not even fear God? Because he understood that by ridiculing Christ, he was rebelling against God. And in his ridicule, this thief forgets that he is also currently suffering the same penalty, only his penalty is a just penalty. How is it that this criminal has come to understand that in rebuking Jesus, this man is disrespecting God? The only answer that makes any sense at all is to understand that God has opened this man's eyes to understand who Jesus really is. And we hear it in what he says. He reveals the work of God in his heart by the words that come out of his mouth. Listen to what he says next. He says, and we indeed are suffering justly. He says, we. He admits, I deserve what I'm getting. He says, I am a sinner. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
First of all, he admits his own sin by claiming that this punishment is just for his crimes. But then he says that, that while they're suffering for what they have done, he turns to Jesus and says, but this man has done nothing wrong. He points to the sinlessness of Christ. He recognizes that he is looking at the perfect, spotless lamb of God. This man has done nothing wrong. And if you think I'm stretching his words just a little bit to say that he understands this is the perfect, spotless lamb of God, then listen to what he says next. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me. It's an incredibly profound statement. Reveals that this man had come in that moment to understand this really is the Messiah. This is him. Here next to me. Obviously, he knows full well that he's about to die. Crucifixion is not a form of punishment. It's a form of execution. And he speaks in the future tense. This is Listen, he speaks in the future tense and says, when you come in your kingdom. What does that imply? That he believes about this man. He anticipates that Jesus at some point somehow will rise from the dead and will eventually return and set up his kingdom as king and Messiah. This man looks at the accusation hanging above Jesus' head, king of the Jews, and says, Amen. This is him. He is the king of the Jews. And in this declaration, he adds this sober, heartfelt request. Remember me. Remember me. He wants Jesus to remember him in the future when he comes to set up his kingdom. This is a desperate cry of a man knowing he's facing his last hours of life. Death is imminent. And he says, I want to be a part of that kingdom. Jesus, please remember me. But it's not really difficult for us to grasp why a dying man would ask to be remembered by God. This is not abnormal. It's not difficult at all for us to picture that man there begging for Jesus to remember him. The astonishing part is not the request, it's Jesus' response. Because Jesus says, and he said to him, Truly, verily, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That word truly, it's a word that's used often by Jesus when he wants to to make sure a person understands the gravity and the truthfulness of what he's about to say. He says, truly, listen to me. Truly I say to you. And notice the word today. Not in the future. This man will not have to wait some indefinite period of time to know whether or not his request to be remembered has been answered. Jesus says, today. Today. And he doesn't even have to to wonder, will will Jesus just remember me mentally or will he allow me to come but I'm going to be somewhere in the back, far away, far removed where surely a sinner like me needs to be. Instead, Jesus says, today, you shall be with me. With me. 
where are they going? He says, you'll be with me in a place called paradise. Paradise is a word used in the scripture. It pictures a beautiful garden, like the Garden of Eden, and it's used in the scripture to refer to what heaven will be like. Essentially, he's saying, you will be with me in glory. You will be with me today in heaven. It reminds us that for the believer, there's no such thing as as purgatory or any kind of intermittent time in which we are, are separated from Christ after death. No, when the believer dies, he or she goes immediately to be with Jesus. What is the point? The point is, look at Jesus. Don't you see his glory as he's hanging on the cross? Here in this one scene, we see Jesus praying for the salvation of his enemies. We see him sovereignly fulfilling passage after passage of Old Testament scripture. And we see him actively rescuing sinners on the cross, not just in theory, but in reality. We must marvel at Jesus on the cross. And not only must we marvel at Jesus on the cross, but we, like this thief, must respond in repentance and in faith. Learn from the dying thief. The truth is, every single one of us before Christ is spiritually in the same condition as that thief hanging on that cross next to Jesus. We're dead in our sins. We're guilty and condemned for our sins, and we deserve rightly the punishment of God's wrath for sin. When it comes to being rescued from that punishment that our sins so rightly deserve, we are as helpless as that thief dangling on that cross. You will not get down by your own effort. There's nothing left to do but to look to the man in the middle. Look to Jesus on the cross. See him as he is. Recognize that while you deserve your sin and the consequences that come with it, he has no sin. He hangs on the cross as the perfect one, as the spotless lamb of God. And recognize that he dies on his cross, not for his sins, but for yours. And then having recognized who Jesus is as the perfect son of God, throw yourself on his mercy. Call out to him as that thief did that day. Remember me. Place your faith in him. And friend, if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then when you come to your dying day, these words that came from the mouth of Christ will be just as true for you as they were for him. Truly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the hope of every Christian. Will you remain hard-hearted like the unrepentant thief, blaming Jesus for your predicament, blaming him for the consequences of your sin? Or will you recognize in humility that you are justly condemned and put your faith in the perfect Lamb of God for salvation? It's important for us as we bring our time to a close to reflect yet still more on how these words must affect us. First of all, number one, believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. And I mean that for unbelievers, certainly, but even as 
a believer, may your faith in Christ be emboldened and bolstered today through this text. I pray that our brief look at this thief on the cross next to Christ has emboldened your faith. This is not a fairy tale. It was real. It was the providential plan of God to save sinners. And we see in the clear fulfillment of prophecy that this death of Jesus was, in fact, God's plan, and it was perfectly fulfilled. Don't ever let the foolish unbelief of this fallen world cause you for a moment to doubt your faith in the reality of the death of Christ for his people. Instead, this week, turn your mind again to the final moments of Christ's earthly life and be refreshed in your faith as you behold the glory of God in the Son on that cross. The crucifixion of Christ is a real historical event, yes, but more than that, it is a real sacrifice that God has surely accepted on behalf of every sinner who believes in Christ. It's my prayer that your faith in this truth will be emboldened and enriched through the text we've seen this morning. But secondly, we must follow Christ. Follow Christ. Since the earliest chapters of the book of Acts, the people who belong to Jesus Christ have been known as those who imitate his life in character. That's why they were called Christians at Antioch. Let this text remind you that your life is not ultimately about you and your personal happiness. The cross of Christ reminds us that absolutely everything, everything that happens to us is to be viewed through the glory of God and the gospel. When Christ was on that cross, though his suffering was indescribably immense, he never wavered one iota from his eternal perspective of the purpose of redemption. It's important for us to develop the same reflex of seeing everything in our life through the lens of the glory of God and his sovereign purposes. And so may we never allow the pursuit of happiness to overshadow the pursuit of holiness. May we follow him faithfully. And thirdly, we must celebrate Christ. Celebrate Christ. When we read of the crucifixion of Christ, it's right that our hearts are ripped from our chest, that our stomachs are nauseated at the thought of what he went through on that cross because of our sin. But at the same time, the cross of Christ is a cause for unreserved celebration. Because while that cross appeared to Christ's enemies as the seal of his defeat, Jesus proved over and over again that his cross was the seal of our redemption. And so we grieve the devastating consequences of our sin, but we rejoice in the perfect satisfaction of God's wrath that Christ secured. The cross of Christ is a call to worship.